In this interview, I'm joined by Nagpa Chogyam, a blues-loving, horse-riding Nagpa, who, with his wife, Kandro Dechen, is the lineage lama, principal teacher of the Aro tradition, a tantric Buddhist householder tradition. Nagpa Chogyam is the author of many books, and today we discuss Wisdom Eccentrics, a rare account of remarkable lamas in the final years of a lost era. It chronicles his education with Kungzang Dorje Rinpoche, a highly reclusive master known for mercurial wrath and facility with Dzogchen. In the book, we follow this 19-year-old Englishman in 1971 into the heart of the Himalayas to seek the highest teachings from a notoriously wrathful and elusive master. In this fascinating and candid conversation, we delve into the themes of the book, including the culture clash of Dharamsala in the 70s, the true face of crazy wisdom and its abuses, how to access the realized state through the emotions themselves, and why Nagpo Chogyam sees the crossover between the arts and Vajrayana as vitally important. So without further ado, Nagpo Chogyam. A large portion of your initial time with Kung Zang Dorje consists of him telling mysterious stories of the activities of lineage masters Do Kensei and Alta Rinpoche, asking you questions and quite often shouting at you, calling you a Tom Yor. That's right. <laughs> but before we get into that, I think first things first, what brought you to the Himalayas and why Tibetan Buddhism? Uh, well, I suppose it's uh, interesting in terms of the um, Viking uh, connection here because my, my first interest was in Vikings, in Norse mythology and, uh, and the whole Viking period. <clears throat> I was interested in that from a very early age and um, <clears throat> horribly disappointed when I discovered that the religion of the Vikings had gone. It was no longer accessible. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, then when I was at the junior school, I think maybe about the age of eight, I think, eight or nine, I discovered uh, uh, two books in the school library by two Czechoslovakian explorers who went to Tibet. One was called On the Road Through Tibet and the other called Tibetan Art. And uh, I opened these books and I just saw pictures that hit me Hmm. in a way. Uh, The um, Tibetan iconography and also the Tibetans themselves. It was the first thing I'd seen that uh, my first impression at that age was this is a Viking religion. Mm. I remember using those words when I was eight years old. This is what I looked at. And so I explored it. Um, Of course, the books that were available uh, were not the kind of books an eight-year-old could read, but I struggled with them. Giuseppe Tucci and so forth, the books uh, available, then Helmut Hoffmann and various other books. Um, I think when I was about 13, I joined the Buddhist Society in London uh, and started getting their magazine, which was also incomprehensible, but uh, I still tried to read it. I then found a book called uh, Experiment in in Mindfulness by Rear Admiral E.H. Shattuck, which is about a, a a British rear admiral who'd spent time in Burma and had gone through a meditation retreat and wrote a book about it. And the book was more or less a handbook on uh, Satipatthana meditation. And so I just used that as my instruction and practiced. 
so I practiced from the age of about 13 or 14 onwards and um, sat for about half an hour to an hour a day, uh, always with the intention of, of uh, going to India to meet uh, Tibetan teachers. So it, it started very early on. And so um, after my first year at art school, I went out to India. What was it about Tibetan Buddhism, do you think, or the iconography of, of Tibetan Buddhism that made you straight away say, this is a Viking religion? It was energetic. It was colorful. It was, uh, it was a, a strange mixture of, um, I don't know, it's, it's, um, it's hard to remember really at that age just how it hit me, but it was the color, the vibrancy, and the energy of it. And do you still feel that way about it? Do you oh, still yeah. see it as a, a Viking religion? <laughs> oh, it's because there's quite a lot of fierceness in, in this in this book. Yes, yes, certainly. Um, it's um, I suppose particularly because um, uh, um, Thor is very similar to Doge Legpa, hmm. and there are some correspondences there that I've really only touched on recently in terms of going to um, Scandinavia and um, teaching there. So you went to India in 1971 for the first time. That's right, yes. Talk us through that. That was presumably your first encounter with, with these lamas, mm -hmm. uh, with, that, with such an exotic place. What was that like landing in 1971 in the middle of Dharamsala, McLeod, Ganji, these places? What was it like landing there and, and uh, what, what was your initial experience? Well, it was, uh, it was, it was interesting because it was, a, it was a different time. I was 19 years old and uh, uh, so quite fresh really. And um, it was interesting meeting um, Tibetans because they seemed um, very familiar to me, far more familiar than Indian people were. And uh, I think that really very much came from the Tibetans themselves. They looked upon Western people as friends. Mm. Uh, we were the people who were helping them, and so there was a natural relationship. So I settled down there quite quickly. The interesting thing was that um, the people with whom I had no connection at all were the other Western people there. They had uh, an approach to the whole thing that I couldn't comprehend at all because they were there very much in, in rejection of Western society. I, I'd, never, I'd never rejected Western society. I still loved blues. I still loved uh, Shakespeare. I still loved everything I loved, and I didn't really see the West as a bad place. But uh, so... Uh, they couldn't understand me and I couldn't understand them. So uh, we um, generally kept apart. So you've been fortunate enough to have some very close relationships with some of the most, uh, for want of a better word, legendary lamas, lamas of that time. Yes. Ujjom Rinpoche, Dilko Kensa Rinpoche, uh -huh. and, and many others. Um, and the book centers primarily around your relationship with Kunsang Dorje, and mostly to do with your conversations in a little room in Rewalsar. Can you tell us a bit about Kunsang Dorje and, and how it was you came to meet him? Well, I met him, uh, I was introduced to him by Dujum Rinpoche, 
uh, at first I studied with Dojo Mepache, but um, he told me after a while, as his role increased as as the head of the as uh, as the head of the Nyingma, uh, that his time was decreasing in terms of how much he could help me. And so he wrote a letter to Konzang Dojo Rinpoche that I was to deliver to him when I found out where he was, of course, because he, he at that time he was continually traveling. And he had a room in different places that people had given him and set aside as his room in their house. And he would turn up without warning, he would leave without warning, he'd be there a month, two months, three months, but then he'd travel on again. Uh, so I found him in Sopema, and I, I, I went to see him with the letter. It's uh, described in the book. And, of course, he didn't really want to teach me. Um, I was the first Western person he'd ever encountered, and he really didn't know what to do with me. Uh, the interesting thing was that... Um, as Dujuman Bache had asked him to teach me, he actually had no choice. This was a thing that I didn't realize at the time, but he was as stuck as I was with the situation. Right. Um, Bache had, had told me I should go there and study with him, so I had no choice. Mm-hmm. He had no choice either, so he was wondering, I guess, what to do with this person. Um, and so he just asked me what I didn't know. And I said, well, I don't know Dzogchen Menakte. And he said, well, that's obvious. <laughs> what else don't you know? <laughs> so uh, I just happened upon, uh, it just hit me uh, at that moment that there was a story uh, uh, that I didn't understand why, why Zapaltrol was offering unnecessary prostrations and irritating his teacher with them. Mm-hmm. And that's what started him off into telling me stories. Uh, he told me uh, quite a lot of stories over the uh, over the months we were together, and um, it wasn't asking me questions about them. It was interrogation. Yeah. It was really, you know, quite frightening. Well, I suppose for a nineteen-year-old, it was frightening. Um, <laughs> And um, one of the problems I had with him uh, was that I was far too polite. Mm. I had, uh, I'm generally polite for an English person. I'm rather Um, old-fashioned. I've sort of come out of the 50s or something. Uh, But I'd learned how to be a Tibetan. Mm. I'd learned the things to say and not to say and he was really trying to break me out of that. And I was always giving him answers that I thought he wanted to hear. And that's mainly why he shouted at me. <laughs> um, so uh, eventually I, I discovered that he was really actually interested in, in what I was thinking and what my thoughts were on these stories. Um, and as I became honest with him about my reactions, our relationship shifted quite uh, quite radically. Uh, what was interesting was that he was um, investigating what kind of a creature I was. Um, 
he was used to Tibetans, but he was not used at all to Western people. And what he discovered was that uh, we were incredibly ignorant in one way, but highly sophisticated in another, that Western people, or at least I was uh, sophisticated in the realm of psychology. And this was a thing he wasn't used to in Tibetans. And so he, he brought that out a lot in terms of his interrogation of me as to what the motivation was of the people in the stories. Why were they doing what they were doing? What were they getting out of what they were doing? Uh, and uh, so that's how it went. Uh, it was fascinating. And I took a lot of notes as it was proceeding, because of course I was being translated, so I had time to write these things down. Yes, the, that really comes across in the book, is the vigor, to put it mildly, I think vigor is too mild a word, <laughs> of the interrogation. Uh, yes. There's a qu certain quality of, of kind of hurtling headlong into it, uh, a tremendous sense of uncorking oneself that comes through in the stories. Uh -huh. and, You've written here, every Lama with whom I've studied has been a raconteur. It's an integral aspect of the role. This book describes the evolution of my experience of that role. And one of the things you mentioned there, the psychological as aspect, one of the things that I found so striking about these exchanges is the multiple levels of teaching going on, or multiple levels of, uh, of investigation going on. There's a story itself with its various lessons and interpretations, and a lot of that does come down to he's pressing you to come out with the motivations. Why does he deal with this uh, brigand and red sen, which I want to ask you about later, by the way, uh, in the way that he does? And then there's the dialogue between yourself and, and Kung Ten Dorje, which has this quality of directness and from the hitness about it, uh, right on top of you, right on your case. Mm. Yes, his main, um, uh, the main thing he was driving at all the time was getting me to understand principle and function. Mm -hmm. And that has been uh, a strong part of the way I've taught ever since, uh, that introducing people to this, that if they wish to practice, they actually have to understand the nature of the practice. That if you understand principle and function, there's nothing that you can't understand within Buddhism. Could you give an example of that? Well, the major example uh, is emptiness and form and the fact that they are non-dual. If, if you understand that, even intellectually, then you can unpack everything because everything is about that. Shine is that, Latong is that, the four now jaws. Uh, wisdom and compassion, the whole thing is emptiness and form. And once you see that, then you can begin to unwrap the thing yourself. Uh, that anything you read is going to be comprised of that in some way, because that is the principle, and then the function is, is how it plays out as a practice or a teaching. In the case of, say, Shine, for example, how, how does the the principle of emptiness and form uh, express itself as a function in, in for instance, Shine? Well, with Shine, you have the form of the thought. You have the self-identification, which is the form, and you let go of that. 
it keeps arising, you keep letting go of it. And, and the emptiness is the letting go. And that then moves on into Laton, where having um, stabilized Shine, then form has to reemerge, and one has to become identified with what arises, but not as an observer. So the observation has no observer. Hmm. So it, 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 it's always, as soon as you understand that play of emptiness and form, it explains every aspect of practice. Beyond that, of course, then there are the five elements and certain other things that play within that. There's the structure of the nine yanas, uh, but they're, they're all actually extremely easy to understand. Um, what becomes complex is when one simply studies and learns facts and attempts to tie them all together without understanding principle and function. So uh, in terms of, I was basically there for him to introduce me to Dzogchen Menapde. And uh, of course, what I got was a, a, a month or so of stories and interrogation. And then at the end, he introduced me to Dzogchen Menapde when he was sure that I understood principle and function. And I could understand at the end of this is why he did that. And it was brilliant because uh, he was actually sure that I understood what he was going to tell me. Yes, he, he used the lineage stories of Dokensei to prepare you for that direct transmission of, of that Dokensei teaching. Yes. It was amazing, really, because one of the stories is about... Um, uh, him going out and you know, uh, you know the transmission where he asks him you know do you hear the dogs bark yes and uh, and all, uh, the same thing happened when he took me outside there were dogs barking and he just replayed story it was it was extraordinary for those uh, listening he told you a story of um, a mind to mind transmission that was Zapaltrol and uh, Nyushul they were just lying together on a hillside and would you mind telling that that story a little bit there. For those who haven't haven't read the book, well, he gives him the uh, uh, transmission of the nature of mind uh, when asked by Nyoshul, who says, you know, "What is the nature of mind?" And he says, uh, "Do you see the stars? Do you hear the dogs barking? That is the nature of mind." <laughs> and in that moment, uh, Nyoshul understands, and so uh, he's. Speaking to me, Kuntang uh, um, is speaking to me at one at the moment, and then he says, let's go outside. And he takes me outside, and we stand there, and I wonder what's going to happen. And then a dog barks, and he says, do you hear the dog barking? <laughs> it was extraordinary. Uh, it's very hard to say what happened in that moment, but um, it was very much as if my relationship with Konzang Doja Rinpoche, the relationship between Zapaltrol and Nyoshul Ken, and the whole situation had fused into one experience. It, it, was a, it was a wonderful moment. What's the difference between that and, you know, me saying that to somebody? Or those, the, the words pointing out a dog barking, anybody could do that in a certain sense. What's the difference when someone like Konzang Doja uses that moment uh, as the means of transmission? Well, I suppose it's very similar to uh, you have a set of words 
if somebody says I love you, <laughs> it depends who said it, doesn't it? It does. If it's the policeman on the corner of the street, um, you have one reaction. <laughs> it depends who it is, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's basically the relationship is there and the role of the teacher is to uh, really allow that to function. So it's basically the relationship and in some sense the words don't matter at all. It, it could be, do you see the tree? Do you hear the frog? It could be anything. It, it's, it's a moment of intimacy, like the statement, I love you. It depends who's saying it, what it means. And how important is the teacher's, should we say, realization in that moment? The relationship is the vehicle. How important is that, is the teacher's realization? And in, in what sense is that transferred or... Yeah, um, the teacher's realization is is crucial. Uh, it, it, it's as crucial as, I mean, uh, I often like to speak of these things in, in more ordinary terms. Mm -hmm. um, you could have a person who had studied a subject, for example, who'd studied music, uh, who could tell you something. And then you'd have somebody who actually played the music telling you that, and it would have a different meaning. Something m more would come across because they would be speaking from the heart of it. Yes. And so it's a question of that understanding. The nature of the transmission is simply being in the presence of somebody who lives what they are saying. It is part of them. They're not just giving you a recipe from a, from a cookery book as somebody who's read cookery books. They've actually cooked the food, they've played the music, they've painted the picture or they've done whatever. And they know about that viscerally. It's not purely an intellectual thing. Right. I can see now your uh, emphasis of, of the Vajrayana and art being somehow almost exactly the same thing sort of like getting a D chord from Jimi Hendrix, something like that he just, just hits you right between the eyes that's right, one of the things that, uh, I, I'm not sure if people say this, but I remembered many years ago, people were saying that the main link between Buddhism and the West was philosophy and psychology uh, and I think this is true of Sutrayana but it's not true of Vajrayana. Yeah. That's very much more the arts. Mm -hmm. You know, that that is the crossover. And I've spent most of my life uh, trying to put this across to people, which is why I spend time on Instagram. And um, usually after a while, people discover that I'm actually uh, not a professional blues harp player. <laughs> <laughs> Because they follow you on Instagram thinking you're a blues harp player, and then, is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or I'm not a painter. I mean, I paint pictures of uh, I, I think it's, um, blues master series where I paint all the great uh, blues masters. I, I put those up, and so yeah. I'm obviously, I play harp. They can see me playing harp. I put little videos up, mm -hmm. and they can see my paintings. They, they know I write poetry. 
And eventually they also discover that I'm a Vajrayana Buddhist teacher. And then it's what they make of that. Um, and I just like to make that available, not actually with any plan in mind, just that that is there in the world and people can pick up on it if they want to. Which is why, in fact, I wrote the um, series of books called An Odd Boy. Yes. I'm not sure if you've heard of these, um, but they are... Um, uh, the author on the book is not Narpa Chogam, as it is on my um, Dharma books. It's uh, Doc Togden, which is my surname is Togden. Um, I had to choose a name at some point to go on my passport and driving license. And so I, I, I just put down Chogam Togden because that was the name that um, Dujan Rinpoche gave me. And uh, I'm Doc Togden because I have a doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> so, and because uh, one of my other interests is the Old West. Yeah. Uh, Doc and, and, uh, yeah, Doc Holliday, exactly. He's one of my favorite characters. And so I thought I'll just be Doc Togden in this context as a, as a blues harp player. Um, uh, so, um, so I present in both forms in that way. You've got you've written here in the in um, wisdom of the eccentrics. Wrath, with respect to a lama, relates to energy. And energy can be manifested in endless modes according to precise circumstances. Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche's wrath was extremely direct, and Chimed Rigden Rinpoche, another of the teachers in the book, wrath was oblique and multifaceted. Yes. And you also. Talk a bit about crazy wisdom, mm -hmm. which you describe as a phrase brought into English by Chogyam Trumper from the Tibetan mm -hmm. phrase uh, Yeshe Cholwa. And you were writing, this is the quality of non-dual realization which offends conventional spirituality, where socially controlled, organized, regimented religious pedestrianism corrupts the essence of non-dual teaching. Crazy wisdom can be manifested to clear the decks. Could you explain a bit about wrathful practice, what a Rafa Lama is, and your experiences with this style of teaching. Mm. I think this is very important because uh, um, wrathful compassion is not an excuse for a Lama to be irritable. This is not what we're seeing at all. I, I, I won't go into any um, personal naming of people, but there are some people who, who, are, who use that as an excuse. Uh, I was very well aware with Kunzang Dojrobache that the, uh, uh, the wrath to which I was subject uh, had nothing to do with him. It was simply a method, and I understood it as a method, because when it was not required, it was entirely absent. Once he'd shouted at me enough that I understood something, he dropped it completely, and he was just the kindest, gentlest person you could ever wish to meet. Uh, so it, it was very much a method with him, you know. I can scrub the floor, but I don't have to scrub it all the time. Once it's clean, it's clean. And it was very much like that with him. That was, uh, that's how he was and what he used. And I guess he figured that I was a person who could stand it. And, you know, that's also important with that wrathful approach, that you really have to know it's going to work. It's not just something 
you know, to which you can subject somebody, uh, you know, without any thought of the consequences of it not working, of the person simply collapsing under it. Uh, so he had to have that knowledge of me that it was something I could deal with. I remember this really came out once when um, he was asking me what I would do on my day off. Uh, it was He was questioning me as to how I was to spend my time. And, um, and um, I said, well, I'm going to be practicing. He said, oh, yes, not, you know, you know, going into town and having fun or something. And I said, no, no. I, I said, I, I would do what I said I'd do. And um, he was a bit suspicious of that. And so I said, uh, it was one of the few occasions where he, he ran into something immovable in me, which was that if I give my word, I give my word. And uh, he suddenly saw me as being quite fierce, you know, like, that's... That's my word. I live and die by it. And so he, he, he came across the table at me with his fists and said, so we fight now then. <laughs> and uh, it was suddenly uh, it was just vaguely Pythonesque. And I just came out into a broad grin. And he said, that's better. <laughs> and it was really quite interesting that he'd actually enjoyed the fact that I'd stood up for myself and I'd stood my ground. That's what, that's what he wanted to see in a way. And, uh, that was delightful. But, you know, the way he did it with this sort of um, you know, pantomime of having a fist fight with me was just hysterical. How do you think one calibrates that sort of approach. You say it's important to calibrate it so that it actually is going to work. Um, because one of the themes that emerges very strongly is that this idea of the mystic versus the bureaucrat, or you mm -hmm. describe them as ecclesiastical idiots. And the heroes in, the, in these stories are often at, at odds with the local religious authorities. Also in the chapter of the basement of Babel, uh, you describe your experience along those lines at the Conference of Western Buddhist Teachers in, in 1994. Yes. There's something about this, the way you're describing this wrathful approach that I imagine would not sit well within the institutional setting. It almost is a tremendous risk of being offensive, of uh, getting it wrong, of being seen in a, in a bad way somehow, or maybe even bringing uh, disrepute on the Dharma or something like this would be another way of, that's a sort of fancier way of saying, making myself look bad, you know? Yes, I, I mean, I mean. First of all, I should say that although I've had wrathful teachers, that I'm, I'm not a wrathful teacher. I don't employ that means. Um, that's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second thing is that uh, that wrathful style is not something that is, is in any way public. It's a very personal thing between teacher and student. And so uh, the idea of bringing Dharma into bad repute should not happen because it should not be that visible. Uh, having said that I'm not a wrathful teacher, it doesn't actually mean that I won't occasionally do something um, forceful in some way. Uh, maybe I'll give an example. Um, Chimarigzen Rinpoche was staying with us once and we were going out to get some Xeroxing for him. And 
I don't usually wear robes in the high street, but because he was there, I was wearing robes all the time, and I didn't change to go out and uh, uh, get the Xeroxing. So um, on the way back, there were a couple having a vitriolic row outside their house, really quite extreme. And I was walking along with a student, and we were approaching them, and I, I thought, um, I wonder if I could help this situation in any way. And I suddenly decided what I was going to do, and so I started walking very quickly. I didn't say anything to my student, uh, and I just walked straight through them, pushed them both out of the way, not with my hands, just bodily. I just steamrolled through them and kept walking. And he asked me why I did that, and I said, well, I wanted to give them an opportunity to think about the situation. And having a strange white-skirted fellow just do that might just confuse them enough for a moment that they might calm down and uh, reappraise the situation. So uh, that is something that I might do. Well, I've done it once in my life. I might never do anything like that again. But um, there are two things one could do in that kind of situation. One could say, one could stop and ask the people why they were having such a vitriolic argument and um, um, why not love each other and <laughs> it might not work at all. I, I, um, so in that situation, uh, what it occurred to me to do was what I did. And I think, uh, you know, wrath in that sense can look like that. It doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be aggressive. It doesn't have to look angry, it can just be uh, strong or forceful. You're not a wrathful llama. No. Why not? And why, or another way of saying it, why was Kunzang Dorje Rinpoche a wrathful llama? What creates a wrathful llama? I think if one has the capacity to act in that way, and one acts in that way, um, I'm not a wrathful llama because I don't um, see myself as having that capacity, so I, I don't act in that way. I think that uh, having the capacity means that you understand very clearly what the outcome is going to be. If you don't understand absolutely what the outcome is going to be and it's going to be good, it's better not to use it. And how would one know that? Well, in the same way that you know anything else. You know, um, if you're on a horse and you, and you jump a little bit, you think that fence is too high for me. <laughs> and you just know that. So, so you know what your capacity is and you know what it isn't and you act accordingly. And if you're in doubt, you don't do it. So, so you either know or you don't know. But if you don't know, you don't do it. And do you think those people who use crazy wisdom and the idea of the Rafa Lama as an excuse for irritability, uh, do they misjudge their capacity? Or do they, are they doing it deliberately? Or uh, what's, what's gone wrong there, would you say? Uh, well, of course... Um, it's not really my place to judge anyone else, but um, I think that those who uh, use the term crazy wisdom to excuse their behavior, particularly sexual exploitation, uh, are simply psychopathic, and that's what's wrong. But crazy wisdom uh, is... Uh, I can see why Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche translated Yeshi Cholwa in that way, but actually what Yeshi Cholwa means 
is uh, primordial wisdom, chaos. So it's not actually crazy, it's chaotic. Uh, and, and chaos is uh, the disintegration of pattern. So here we're looking at what the religious pattern is, and it's going beyond the religious pattern. Now, I think one would have to make an important distinction between Yeshi Chorwa and Myonghuruka. These are two different modes that you could call crazy, or you could call um, whatever word you use. One is associated with Maha Yoga. This is the Myonghuruka. And this is very much someone like Drupakunli. And this is uh, a shocking behavior. And it's used for its shock value. Now, Yeshicholwa is actually not shocking. If anything, it's oblique. It's uh, idiosyncratic. It's whimsical. It's, and it's associated with Dzogchen rather than Mahayoga. And so crazy wisdom is something that uh, is just not part of the mindset. It goes outside the conventional mindset. It's not set up to shock. And I think a lot of people get these two modes confused with each other, which is problematic. I think one of the things that's important when you look at the um, physical or financial or sexual abuse that occurs, one can't actually say that this is crazy wisdom. What is crazy about it? It's actually predictable. This is what happens when you get people who abuse their power. Rock stars do it, politicians do it, a lot of people do it, and it's not crazy, it's, it's, it's highly predictable. And Yeshi Cholwa is not predictable. You know, it's not cliched. It's not something that's expected. You know, when you hear of some politician uh, being involved in some scam, you don't say, oh, how shocking, how amazing, you know? It's predictable, that's what these people do. Uh, and you know, Yeshi Cholwa is not predictable. Where it's predictable, it's not Yeshi Cholwa. Can you give an example? Of, you give several in the book of Yeshi Cholwa in action. I think that uh, one of the things that I always remember uh, as being completely out of nowhere was was Jimmy Rizan uh, in Switzerland. Uh, giving a Bado Todol empowerment. And he was on the throne, he was chanting, using his bell and damaru, and suddenly he stopped, smelt, raised his arm, smelt his armpit, and said, someone once told me I smelt. Do you think I smelt? And then he just continued. I, I remember sitting there thinking, um, hang on. <laughs> did I just nod off and go to sleep and dream that, or did that actually happen? Because it, it was just seamless and that you know it was not explained nothing happened around it at all and I had to check with the gentleman sitting next to me did you see it? yeah I saw that because so, if I hadn't been able to check it I couldn't have confirmed whether it really happened or not yeah and uh, things of that nature would happen just things that you couldn't describe why or what or who it was obviously not something he did for his own advantage. 
So why did he do it? What, what was what was the effect? Would you say? I would say it woke everyone up. That <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I mean, you could be sitting there in a long run, and the, you know your Tibetan's being chanted or something, and it's uh, um, some people go to sleep, some people have a daydream, but certainly everyone seemed to become quite alert at that point. So uh, that could have been the reason, although that would be my hypothesis. Something else that comes out quite a bit in the book and is related to, to some of these these things we're discussing is this idea of the role of the emotions and the personality display in the Vajrayana approach. Not a sort of pacification or transcending of, of the emotions, but almost utilizing them somehow, even the negative, so to, so to speak, negative ones mm-hmm. in teaching or in expression of one's personality. Can you talk a bit about the Vajrayana approach to this? I think it's quite countercultural to what most people, I think, would assume about Buddhism or assume about religion in general, what it should be aiming towards. Yeah. Uh, now, this is a particular thing that concerns Vajrayana. Uh, mm. The fact that uh, all the dualistic neuroses uh, are a distortion of the beginninglessly realized state. Uh, It begins from there. So where there is anger, where there is arrogance, where there is paranoia, where there's willful stupidity, where there's obsession, uh, these are all distortions of the realized state, which means that they participate of the energy of the realized state. They're not something else. Because they're not something else, because the energy there is connected with the realized state, one can access the realized state through those emotions. Now, those emotions all exist in a dualistic framework, so that when one has that emotion, if one, um, I mean, the main uh, practice in terms of Dzogchen is, is a texture where you uh, find the presence of awareness in the sensation of whatever arises. If you do that and you let go of the storyline, then that emotion evaporates as in its dualistic form. It is then freed and liberated. So the greater the power of the emotion the greater the access to realization through it in terms of its energy. So there's this uh, uh, Vajrayana saying, the more the wood, the hotter the fire. And that's very much the principle there. So, um, of course, this does depend on uh, the experience of emptiness in terms of Tantra and experience of the non-dual state in terms of Dzogchen. Without that, it's non-functional. But if you have some experience of emptiness, then it becomes workable uh, to sit with the emotion. Um, Usually, the um, direct way of accessing it is to detect, or or rather, the simplest way of accessing it is to uh, see where you feel the emotion in your body and become identified with the physical texture of that. So you let go of the thoughts around the emotion and simply go directly into the texture of it. 
Now, in terms of um, personality uh, display and using the um, dualistic emotions uh, or the kleshas in terms of a teaching method is that um, a teacher is teaching his or her students what is being taught is that these emotions are the realized state. They are simply distortions of the realized state. And when you can observe the teacher manifesting these emotions as empty display, it is a key to recognizing that empty display in yourself. And so a skillful teacher will manifest a what's called a personality display in order to conjure with the orientation of the student to their own neurotic display. Could you give an example of, of that in action? Um, I think examples are very tricky here because they're all individual. One, one becomes aware of, um, of a student's personality and one um, can mirror that in certain ways. One becomes aware uh, if someone has uh, an obsessive quality and one can encourage that obsessive quality. I remember being in uh, Howells, which is a department store in Cardiff, and I was there with a, a student and I was pointing out to her all the cutlery there. They had these wonderful mahogany boxes full of cutlery and um, and after a while she said hang on what's happening here I had no interest in cutlery at all an hour ago and now I'm obsessed with cutlery <laughs> and, uh, and so I said exactly I think probably the main way that I work with people is to encourage them to lust after things because when people are lusting after things they're actually a lot more alive and uh, what's important uh, is to be able to appreciate, because appreciation is, is very much the core of compassion. If you have no appreciation, you can't have any compassion either. One actually has to be able to um, desire in order for compassion to be possible. Uh, this is even understood in, in uh, counseling therapy, where... Um, most people who go through a counseling um, training will be taught that um, if you don't like a client, if you ever get a client you don't like, you've got to refer that person. You have to like your client. And when I heard this, I thought, right, well, this is understood here too, that you've got to appreciate the person. You can't just say, I will help you, even though I don't like you. You, you have to like the person. And this is uh, an important thing in Vajrayana, that the teacher has to enjoy the neuroses of his or her students. And by enjoying them, what is meant there is that they have to see the potential in those neuroses for liberation. If they can't see these neuroses as a distortion of liberation, then they can't help that person. And so when you see that, when you actually see the potential in the neuroses, 
then you enjoy those neuroses. And, and I'm using this word enjoy in a particular way. You can see how something could be transformed. The final thing to, you've just walked into it there, you've led, you've led into it, is this idea of the teacher-student relationship. Mm-hmm. It's crucial. It's at the heart of, of the Vajrayana, and it's the heart of, of your book, Wisdom Eccentrics. You've mentioned there that the vehicle for the... The teaching is the relationship itself. Yes. And now you're talking about this idea of there has to be a certain a liking, a matching uh, going on mm-hmm. there, a compatibility on some on some level. What can you say about about those initial steps, the initial prerequisites, you could say, for that special relationship that exists in the Vajrayana between a teacher and a student? Well, I think that um, first of all, I should say that the differentiation between personal and professional is something that comes from a Western uh, perspective in terms of therapy. And, you know, there I can see the value of it because you've got an hour a week or, or however often and you've got to be direct with the person and that if you um, let something personal enter into it, feelings can be hurt because the person thinks they have a personal relationship with you where they don't. And, and that can cause problems. So I understand that paradigm. Um, in terms of Vajrayana, you know, those things don't apply at all. Uh, what is important there uh, in terms of the personal relationship has much more to do, I would say, with the relationship between um, a teacher and student, say, in a field like music. Mm. I was watching um, a documentary on Philip Glass, and he talks with great fondness and affection of a German music teacher he had at one time. And this woman was uh, a nightmare. <laughs> she, um, <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> uh, she was really brutal with him. And um, she asked him to compose a Baroque piece. So he did. He gave it to her. She tore it apart. She just ripped it to shreds with criticism, told him everything that was wrong with it. Go away, write it again. I can't remember how many times he had to rewrite it, but at least five or six times. And finally, he came back and he showed it to her. And she said, now this is a perfect piece of Baroque music. And what he'd written was a piece of Bach. Note for note, Bach. And he said he learned so much from that. Now, um, what there was in their relationship was, was a degree of respect. That when you actually appreciate uh, the wisdom of a teacher from your own experience, then this is an extremely powerful situation. Now, I should say that... Uh, there's a problem with this word devotion. And I think a lot of people uh, misunderstand what, what devotion means. It, it always amuses contradiction in myself when somebody asserts that a certain lama is, is oh, you know, definitely enlightened. Now, what is funny about this is that they're actually saying that they're enlightened that they themselves are enlightened. Because how do you recognize 
an enlightened being unless you're an enlightened being. So how do you recognize a good musician if you can't even play an instrument? I mean, you can be impressed by their speed, perhaps, but that's about all. Uh, you can really only appreciate a musician, or rather, if, if you are a musician, you can appreciate a musician even more. I remember that I always used to, I still do like watching uh, Western movies. And I'd watch people doing things on horses, and uh, it, it didn't really hit me that anything special was happening. Then I took horse riding lessons, and then I started seeing what these people were doing, and I was just so impressed. I thought, I don't believe that what that man just did on that horse, you know, thinking I can barely sit on one without falling off. So the more experience you get, as a practitioner, the more it becomes possible to have devotion. So devotion is knowledge. Devotion is experience. When you can really appreciate where another person is, but in order to do that, you have to have experience. And I think what, what a lot of people misunderstand is that they think uh, having a, a romantic relationship with a teacher that's based on going gauzy over an oriental this is not devotion it's something and you may be able to do something with it but invariably it falls apart when the teacher says something to you that you don't like yes you're not going to let a person like that shout at you no um, or in fact uh, um, my feelings about Kuntang Deutsch Rinpoche at the time were very much based on Dujan Rinpoche. What kept me there was my respect for Dujan Rinpoche. That's why I went through it, uh, because I thought he knows what he's doing. <laughs> I may not understand it, but he, he, he sent me here for a purpose. And then as the time went on, then my... Uh, my devotion for Kunzan Dojirun, which he started you know, developing because I really understood that he knew what he was doing as well. And that's why Dojirun Rinpoche sent me there. So, so I think you know, this is crucial and this is what seals the contract between teacher and student, that there is an understanding of, of the process that is built on knowledge and direct experience. These musical analogies, it, it does map very precisely and what if not pathology, then the way that Philip Glass's teacher treated him, if it wasn't pathology, if it wasn't, you know, abusive uh, nastiness coming from her own being a nasty person, then, then it was profound respect, mm. an enormous display of respect. Well, he certainly spoke of her with great affection. <laughs> but she respected him, you know, in order to treat him so fiercely. Well, she must have believed he could do it. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the heart of it. Mm. So the respect goes both ways. The teacher actually has to believe you can do it. That's fantastic. I think that's uh, a, a great time to end it. I will put links to your organization, Arrow Buddhism, uh -huh. in the show notes underneath the audio, so people will be able to find you that uh -huh. way. Is there anything else you'd like people to know? Any way that they can uh, find you or get in touch with you if, if they'd like to do that? Well, I think that's the main way. I mean, I think the main thing I'd like to say to people at this moment in time is that uh, don't think you're not an artist. 
everyone is an artist, even if it's only the way you dress or the way you decorate your own home. And that, you know, the way into Vajrayana is through being an artist, learning to appreciate. It's the way to have compassion for others. If you can't appreciate, you'll never understand that. Thank you, Nagpachogyam. Thank you. Nice to speak with you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.